Welcome to Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage, the show that gives you a chance to hang with today's top contemporary jazz artists. I'm your host, Carl Brown. Hey, welcome to the show today, everybody. Today, we got a real treat for you. Our guest today came onto the contemporary jazz scene back in 1998 with his debut release, Stay a While, which was produced by Brian Culbertson, and it resulted in multiple number one hits and ended up earning him the title of Best New Artist that year. He has been a fixture on the touring and smooth jazz radio scene ever since then. He's notched eight, 11, I'm sorry, albums to his credit, several top hits. He's one of the most sultry and melodic saxophonists I've ever had the pleasure of listening to. He's played and recorded with the likes of Bob Skaggs, Jeff Lorber, and Larry Carlton, to just, just to name a few. He's had over 5 million streams on Spotify, more than 2.5 million streams on Apple Music, and countless streams on, on other platforms and services. And he's currently working on a new album that's being produced by uh, producer extraordinary Adam Hawley. In addition to that, all doing all that and being a world-class musician, he also teaches music industry entrepreneurship at St. Thomas University. He's a founding member of the Sax Pack with Kim Waters and Jeff Kashua. Please welcome to the show today, Mr. Steve Cole. Steve, welcome. <laughs> great to be here. It's great having you. It's great having you. I, I've got so many things that I want to talk to you about, man, because I was reading through your background and man, you've had an interesting road to get to where you are today. Yeah, it has been a, a bit of a zigzag. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. But I, I'm going to start with, you know, I got to tell you, when I listen to your music, you have this sound that is clearly you, but it's diverse at the same time. Some of your music is funky, some of it is mellow, some of it is what us old heads used to call uh, baby-making music, you know? So how are you able to walk that fine line of being so diverse while still being uniquely you? That's a good question. I think, I'm sorry, my, my, my dogs are barking in the background, but that, <laughs> that's just an occupational hazard. Right, right, right. <laughs> that must mean I'm getting a delivery or something. There you go. The peanut butter box is here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good question. I mean, the challenge is always to try to, you know, explore different styles, but also kind of still, you know, chase after that concept of your own voice on your instrument, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I've been really fortunate to work with a number of different producers who have challenged me in different ways. But, you know, the one thing that I always remembered, and it was a conversation I had with Kirk Whalem a very, very long time ago, his whole message to me really in the conversation was, man, don't lose sight of who you are. You can be inspired by other players. We all are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that you need to focus on who you are as a player and develop that voice. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've taken that to heart. And it's advice that has served me well, and it was very well timed. Yeah, well, and, and advice that comes from one of the sages in this genre, for sure. Absolutely. So did you know you always wanted to be a musician? You know, I had a natural aptitude uh, for music and a desire to make music when I was very young. And I was, again, very fortunate. My Both my parents were musicians. Father was a tenor player. So we had instruments in the house. I would always kind of, you know, sneak into his closet, <laughs> grab an instrument when he wouldn't look. For a while, that was a bit of an annoyance for him because uh -huh. <laughs> I wouldn't put it back exactly the way uh -huh. I took it. <laughs> 
I always kind of, you know, had this, you know, I used to turn on the radio and try to play along, you know, at a very young age. You wow. Know? The problem was, is that when I got into like band and formal music education, all I wanted to ever do is play the melody. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Band with like a hundred and some people, you know, I mean, you got to play that, you know, that, that part, that's like a harmony part. I would be like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to play the melody. <laughs> I got kicked out of band a lot. <laughs> <sighs> but you stuck with it, huh? Yeah, you know, and I wanted to quit, you know, because, you know, it, it, I was young and I'm just like, this isn't working out the way I wanted to. Here's where we need to talk about patience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the real turning point for me was, you know, I found a great teacher. That is not an unfamiliar story. Yeah. When I was young, I was introduced to a cat named Wayne Richards, who this day I credit for kind of lighting that fire. Okay. Really allowing me and inviting me to see what the possibilities were. And he he was a great saxophone player and a great teacher. Yeah, that changed things for me because I get really inspired and I started to have that combination of inspiration and accountability. Yeah, yeah. That was the beginning of like, okay, I think I'm going to take this seriously. How old were you when that happened, when you decided, hey, I think I'm going to take this seriously? I think I was probably 14 or 15. Okay, okay. So you're, you're coming of age at that time. And so that's cool. That's cool. And why saxophone? Was it that your dad was a saxophone player that led you to the sax originally or was there something else? Yeah, I mean, I think it was primarily we had one. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was, you know, my dad was kind of my hero, you know, and, and I thought he was cool. I mean, he would, you know, put on his black tuxedo on the weekend and go and play clubs and things like that. And I, I thought he was the coolest guy in the world. So I'm like, all right, I, I want to be like him. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Uh, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. So other than your dad, who would you say were some of your musical influences? Well, you know, one of the things that my dad and I would do, because we spent a lot of time together. My dad worked like three jobs. And the way that we spent a lot of time together is I, he just kind of took me to work. So he had three different things he did, one of which was being a musician. And he did that like four days a week. And then, you know, other things. But he took me with him and we rode together a lot. And what we would do in the car is we would turn on NPR and listen to the jazz stations. And he would introduce me to all these different musicians. And one of the things that we would do is we would play a game. It's like, right, who's playing trumpet? Who's playing tenor? So, I mean, my influences were just basically like whatever public radio would curate at any given time because we were just listening constantly. I started to, of course, you know, find affinity with saxophonists early on. You know, Cannonball Adderley was like a standout. It was definitely when I heard Cannonball Adderley, number one, I always got it right. And it was one of those things where his sound was so incredibly unique. His approach to music was both complex and soulful. And I started really, really connecting with him and then, you know, kind of went all over the place. I mean, of course, John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, one of my favorite saxophone players from Chicago back in the day, Johnny Griffin. Okay. Then, you know, I started getting into more of the kind of, you know, soul music and started listening to Junior Walker and Curtis Owsley. And I just chased it down, you know. That is cool. I think Junior Walker is one of the unsung greats of his time. You know, I don't think he gets more, enough credit. Absolutely. I mean, to this day, I listen to, to Junior Walker and I'm, I, I'm always hearing something I haven't heard. Pretty good stuff. So you have a degree in economics from Northwestern University, one of the top schools in the country. You know, typically somebody with degree, a degree like that from such a prestigious university ends up working business or finance. And then you spent time, you, you got an MBA from the University of Chicago, another huge and very, very well-respected institution. But music kept on a calling, huh? 
Well, you know, the, the problem with my undergraduate education, I mean, I didn't listen, I didn't have a problem with my undergraduate education. I was felt very lucky to, to be able to attend uh, Northwestern University. But when I was in the music school, I was studying modern classical saxophone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because David Sanborn studied at Northwestern briefly. Ah, I did not know that. And so did Andy Snitzer. Okay. So, you know, they kind of had a little better idea about where they were going and what they were doing. And David, I think, lasted about a year there, you know, important development in his playing. And Andy went on to University of Miami because he, you know, kind of felt like, all right, I need to go into a different thing. I didn't really know where I was going. I started out playing classical music. I felt like I was where I needed to be, but I, I couldn't see a career in it. I didn't know what it looked like. Going around and, you know, around the world and playing this very esoteric music with orchestra, you know, at the time, at a young age, you know, as as one would do, I got a little discouraged. And I said, you know, while I'm here at Northwestern, I may as well get what I said to myself. And I'm making air quotes right now. I got a degree in economics. I went into the management consulting field. I worked uh, with a company called Bain and Company and then went to work with a client, Baxter International in strategic planning was running home. I was traveling all the time, but running home to play gigs on the weekends. I just knew it wasn't for me. I knew it wasn't for me. You get when you know you're doing the wrong thing. You know, I was like, you know, had a job and benefits and a car and an apartment. And I'm like, all right, well, maybe this is what it is. But one day I was just like, I can't do it anymore. And so what I did was I went to grad school so I could quit my job. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, cause I still, I still didn't really know what was what. And I didn't have a whole lot of confidence in myself either, which is a really, really important thing. Had I had a bit more confidence in myself, you know, not had so many plan B's and plan C's, I would have just been like, hey, man, I could do this. People in the world doing that. I'm exaggerating. But like, so there's three people in the world doing that. Why can't I be number four? But I didn't have that conversation with myself. And it wasn't until grad school that I actually started to see the matrix a little bit. It's like, wait a minute, you know what? There's a path here. There's a way to go about this. I'm learning some things about how to differentiate, how to understand the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. I was also a full-time student, and I it was a lot easier than being a full-time management consultant. And then I ended up graduating and not going back into industry at all, you know? Became a full-time musician, and, uh, you know, I did the grind. It ended up being an all right thing to do. It paid off for you. It paid off. We have a little something in common. You worked for Baxter Healthcare. Yeah. I owned an ad agency in, I'm in Milwaukee. I owned an ad agency in Milwaukee for about 20 years. And for about eight of those years, Baxter Healthcare was our largest client. I was there all the time. I even had an office there, you know? So what businesses did you work on there? Well, I started out in the their in-house management consulting practice, which was called Management Services. And then I moved into the renal product. Oh, product. yeah. A large division of the company back then and uh, strategic planning for them. Yeah. Yeah. We worked a lot in Renal too. We, in fact, we launched globally for them a um, high dose hemodialysis platform that never, it, it hasn't made it to the US yet, but it is being used in some places like Australia and Europe and whatnot. But yeah, funny, funny world. So I got to believe your educational background maybe has a little something to do with you teaching music industry entrepreneurship. Well, it's a funny story because, you know, I started out really strong once I, once I committed to being a musician and I really, you know, started to build the confidence I needed in order to persevere. Once things started to happen, they happened quickly. So I got signed to records in 1998 
made a couple of records for Atlantic, and then I was moved over to Warner Brothers and uh, made a record for Warner Brothers. And then it was like the Time Warner AOL merger. And, you know, all us cats got dropped. I was thinking to myself at that time, like, you know, it's it, this is cool. This has been a good run, you know. Maybe I need to start thinking about what my next act is. I had enjoyed guest speaking at colleges and universities while I was on, you know, on the road. Because I still had a bunch of friends who I knew from music school had, you know, gotten positions at universities, right? They're like, hey, you know what? You're going to be in, come talk to my, our music students about your career. You have a business background and you, you know, you've got a major record deal and you're touring. And so I really enjoyed, you know, stopping by and talking to students about what the industry is like and how to think about preparing for their career. When I didn't have a record deal, I, you know, and then, and back then you needed a record deal. This is, you know, I started thinking, well, you know, I really enjoy this, so maybe I should look for a gig doing that. I had interviewed for a number of different positions, a number of universities, and luckily one of the offers I got was in Chicago, at Columbia College in Chicago, which is a, a large fine and performing arts college. I got the job as an associate professor, or assistant professor, at running the music industry program, and right when I got the gig, I got a record deal again. So I was like, how the heck am I going to do this? Because at the time, signed to Narada, which was then acquired by Blue Note. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm making records for Blue Note, um, but it all worked out. And I've been doing ever since, because they really do feed each other. I mean, you want to you wanna know how to do something better. Try to teach it. Try teaching people about it, you know? You know, there's been a really, a really nice rhythm to these two parts of my career, and they, they fit together like puzzle pieces. It's really cool. And I got to imagine, you know, that given what's changed in the music industry over the past several decades, that what you teach is extremely important now. The requirement of entrepreneurship in any creative enterprise is exponentially greater than it has been in the past because, you know, we don't have the infrastructure. I mean, back in the day, it wasn't the best system, but, you know, there was a system. There were radio stations, blah, 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 blah. You get a record deal. They've kind of got staff in place to handle, you know, distribution and publicity, marketing and radio. And, you know, you have an organization. Well, you know, now, yeah, record labels still exist, but are they, you know, really an option for you know, most artists? Not really. And the other thing is that most artists don't need a record label. And you want to put your creative content out there. You have a lot to navigate and there is, you know, really no infrastructure for you, at least initially. So understanding how to create, you know, content, how to understand your market. I mean, all the things that you did for so many years in advertising, there's a lot that artists are now responsible for. And I think, you know, people who want to pursue careers in, in creative enterprise are seeking out. I know now that I need to know some things. <laughs> yeah. I got to believe on the festival scene, people are probably pulling you aside and saying, hey, hey, Steve, I got this thing going on. What do you think about this? Probably tap your uh, extensive business knowledge, too, while they're out there gigging with you, huh? <laughs> Unfortunately, well, that happens, yes. But unfortunately, what, what people ask me more about is like, you know, what they should do with their money. It's like, it's known for finance, but that's not the, the path I took. There. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That is fantastic. That is funny. So, well, I tell you what, why don't we listen to one of your big hits? And I'm going to say this is one of my favorites of yours. How about you take a listen to When I Think of You?
All right, everybody, that was today's guest, Steve Cole, one of his huge hits, When I Think of You. So you've obviously, Steve, had a, a great deal of success, and you're, I mean, you've still got a ton of runway in your career. So what are some of the goals for your musical career going forward? Well, you know, I'm always trying to, you know, innovate in the music, you know, working with different people, writing with different people and working on, you know, production with different artists is always great because I want to keep challenging myself because I got to get out of my own brain. You know, it's funny. I started out for this new record that I'm working on right now. I started out and I had this real creative spurt and I kind of like every night I was like another new tune, another new. Then I, you know, finally I'm working with Adam Holly on this record and he was on, on the road for m most of December. It's back. He shoots me some stuff he's been working on. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you did that because you know what? Some of the stuff that I did, I like, but that other perspective, man, it's it's really so that's one really to, to, to learn and grow by working with other people. And the other thing is one of my goals is I took a, a bit of a hiatus from the road, as we all did during during COVID, but we extended that a bit because I really wanted to focus on what kind of a performance I want to put on stage. The good fortune uh, to do is I'm working with uh, a gentleman named Stuart Pastor, who's really, really a, uh, an incredible resource for me. And he was listening to my records. He's like, why don't you ever play with a horn section? Your music has these beautiful horn lines. You know, yeah, you could carry the show with a, with a rhythm section and blah, blah, blah. But like, why don't you really get just a killer horn section and put this all together? should be experienced. And so we had a couple of uh, nights at the Dakota in uh, Minneapolis and put together an all-star band. Jeff Kashua, a dear friend of mine, actually was kind enough to put, you know, arrangements together, a whole new concept uh, and a whole new approach to the music. And it was just amazing. It was just a, a, a privilege and, a, and an amazing experience to just have that kind of power on stage. So I'm really focused on making sure that when I perform that, that I have the opportunity to do it that way. I know that sometimes, you know, different venues don't accommodate, you know, when I can, I'm really focusing on, you know, opportunities to perform and really put that music on stage that way. You know, it's interesting. Stuart and I chatted, I think it was yesterday, he said, because I produced the Fresh Coast Jazz Festival in Milwaukee. And he was telling me all about your reinventing of your, your stage act with your horn section and everything. And I got to tell you, like, I think it's a great idea. I mean, like, you know, from a from a promoter's perspective... I'm always looking for something that's different than what the promoter down the street is doing, right? You know, to sell tickets, you got to have something that's a little bit, you know, a little bit extra. And if people come into your show and they see something that they're not going to see everywhere else, then boy, that's really good for you as a promoter. But the promoters don't have that if artists like you don't say, you know what, I'm going to reinterpret how I go to stage. I'm, I'm going to do some things differently. So I think it's a matter of respect. And yeah, I know the, the finances of it. You know, some people think, well, I, I can't afford more than four people on stage. But the reality of the situation is, is when you give people something new and something different, that ends up paying for itself usually. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we as artists, some of us, you know, we're, we're very suggestible and I've worked with people have really good intentions, but aren't necessarily willing to take those kind of risks and say, let's really think about how can we differentiate? How can we take what you do and, and understand that, you know, you need to maintain your voice as an artist, but 
what are some really interesting things that we can do that might be risks, but you know, why don't we take them? Because we have confidence it's going to work out. And and working with Stuart, he's not afraid, man. He's not afraid. And he also has so much faith in me where it's just like, you know, it's a risk, but I mean, come on. Yeah. It's a calculated risk though. I mean, good music is good music. All you're doing is, is you're taking good music and you're enhancing that, right? For the audience. So you would, you would hope that people would be wise enough to say, Hey, this is benefit, but you're right. I mean, I think we can sometimes in, in music get so stuck on, you know, an artist needing to be what they've always been. And for me, I don't, I never saw it like that. As long as the music is good, like keep doing, keep trying, keep exploring, you know? So walk us through your process for making music. Like what sparks you? What do you, how do you make it happen? Uh, how do you start? Huh? That's a really great question. There's no like consistent answer. It's a number of things. I'm not necessarily someone who I have a really kind of busy life. So I have a lot of things going on. And so when it comes down to writing, it's more of one of those things like, okay, here we go. We got a project, you know, get into that world. One of the things that's really cool for me that I'm very fortunate is that I have a ton of really talented students that I'm surrounded by all the time sharing music with me. And I mean, talk about like access to a whole different thought pattern. As a matter of fact, there's one student who he had a conversation with a disabled veteran as part of a class. And he overnight created this beautiful track telling the story of this individual asked me to to play you know on it and here and there a little interplay with the vocal and something that you know is not a genre that i would normally be participating in as a player i have these students who are so innovative so i think that a lot of kind of the creativity that that I muster for my own work is a product of the inspiration I get from young, hungry artists who are experimenting and, and don't have that burden of having done it before. They're still discovering, man. So part of it is that. Part of it is that a little bit of osmosis. I listen to a lot of music. I try to get inspired by a lot of different music and a lot of different genres. Sometimes I'll just hear something that just kind of makes me feel like I hear something. The funny thing is, is I rarely write melodies and things on the saxophone, trying to disrupt that because I know how to play the saxophone fairly well. So writing music on the saxophone is, it's a bunch of opportunities to fall into patterns. So I try to find an instrument that I, I basically suck at, you know, like just what comes out. Like, you know, I'll grab it and plug it in and just start messing around with it because I don't have patterns that i fall into on the base have some aptitude to have a pattern try and get inspired by disrupting the process that's really cool so growing up in chicago what role did that city play in your musical influences and your development every role <laughs> yeah yeah music school i ever went to was the city of chicago <laughs> yeah i can imagine there's a couple of things that i remember about growing up as a musician of as a musician in chicago one there is a culture amongst musicians in chicago of nurturing and mentorship the older players would give you a, a sufficient amount of you know it wasn't like go away kid you bother me all right come on up and play and you know fall on your face 
But there was somebody there afterwards to say, now you see what you did before you blah, 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 blah. You need to work on X, Y, and Z. There was a gentleman named Richard Patterson who I met fairly early on in my career, and he was the bass player for Miles Davis past and then went on to work with David Sanborn for many, many years. And he asked me to be in his band when he got back to Chicago, which was really a surprise to me. He learned a lot from Miles. And so he passed a lot of that on to us, even some of the tough love that Miles would you know, give to his band. Things like, you know, I'd be playing a solo over a groove and, you know, playing solos over one chord is one of the harder things to do. And he would just look at me and he would just go like this. He would shake his head and I would keep playing. And then I would look at him and he, you know, like, all right, let's go. He would shake his head. Sitting there, I'm playing over this one chord. I'm trying to create. I'm thinking, I'm like, I've exhausted all the ideas I had and he's not letting me stop. So angry. And I remember going, getting off stage. I'm like, man, when I say go to the change, how come we're not going to the change? He's like, because you haven't played anything yet. He's like, you haven't played. All I've heard is you play what you know. I haven't heard you create anything new yet. That was a, a tough lesson to learn in the situation. This is on a gig. You know, it would have been very easy for him to be like, you know, roll his eyes and go to the next section. He wasn't going to do that. He had an obligation to a young player who needed that kind of mentorship. Now, the other thing about Chicago is that I got to play so many different styles of music, blues gigs, as gigs, R&B, funk, soul, pop gigs. I was playing gospel music. I was embraced by a music community. I was given an education in an incredibly diverse uh, palette of styles and genres. I was given mentorship and musical nurturing. It's the best music school I, I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so good to hear you say that. I don't, I heard someone talking about, well, they were, we had the young guitar player Lamech on not too long ago, and he was talking about a similar thing in New Orleans. You are expected to come to the table with your skills honed, but how it's not a competitive scene and how there's people around that are willing to nurture you and grow you, but they expect that next time you get on the stage, you come with it, you know? <laughs> and uh, you, you mentioned that tough love, and I think that's really critically important, you know, in the development of young talent, whether you're singers or whether you're, you know, musicians or actors and actresses, like someone's always telling you that you're good, then no one, I don't think those people really care about you, you know? I think the people that really care about you are the ones that are saying, hey man, I like this, but you know what, right over here, you can sharpen that up and that's going to make you even better, you know? So how do you, Steve, know when a song is ready to put out there into the world? You know, there are some tunes that it feels like the paint is dry. Finish it, it's, you listen back over and over and over again. And it's like, yeah, I'm happy with that. I don't have a whole lot of problem looking at something and saying, all right, you know, the ink is dry, let's put it out. I do have that paralyzed by I could do better, I could do better, is listening to my saxophone and being like, man, if I go back in and you know fix that one thing, or man, I'm like, I, I liked this yesterday, but I hate it today. And after a while, you know, past the point of, of diminishing returns, I can't tell you how many times I would be play something down. And yeah, I got it more perfect, but like all the vibe was completely gone. A lot of it is like really, really trying to, you know, develop the ability to play it down authentically without having to go in and there's a lot of the energy can be lost in that process. 
conceptualizing a performance and making music as, you know, we call it an album for a reason. Photo album, you don't go back and like fix your face. But, you know, this is who I am now. And so I'm going to do the best I can now. And at a certain point, I got to be like, this is an album that hopefully there'll be a next time. And then I listen back after I get out of the whole kind of mayhem of <laughs> episodes of mayhem <laughs> and self-doubt and all that. I'd be like, you know, that wasn't so bad. I kind of dig it now, you know. That's cool. Well, let's take another listen to some of that good music you've been making. This is your remake of the song Undone. Yeah. This was from my Moonlight album. I was able to a whole orchestra on this track, so it was a lot of fun. This is one of my favorite remakes of this song, so let's just take a listen to Steve Cole with Undone.
right, everybody, you just heard today's guest, Steve Cole, with his remake of the song Undone. So what do you like most and least about being a musician, Steve? What I like most is engagement, man. It's like meeting people that you'd never be able to meet in other, uh, you know, vocations and working and collaborating with people that are brilliant and warm and uh, generous. For me, it's really about just like engagement with people, with listeners and with collaborators. I dislike the most is having to be away from home. My home and my family has always been like a big rubber band. When I'm on the road, when I'm gone, I know that I have to be there and I enjoy myself and I know that I'm doing you know something that I need to do. But I also feel that that elastic pull back. Not mess with my transportation to the airport. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I will get home. <laughs> you know, I've heard so many artists say that. And I think sometimes people have this ill thought that artists are out there on the road and they're just hanging out and hanging out. And, you know, Najee had a comment for me. He's like, I always try to get the first thing back home after a gig. And, yeah, I got to believe there's a lot of, like, the stage has got to be now you do all this work and you get on stage and then you have all these fans that are out there yelling and screaming and dancing and partying and nodding their heads and stomping their feet. So that's got to be a heck of an adrenaline rush, right? Absolutely. And, you know, in the moment on stage, it's like, I don't think of anything else except for the music and them. Yeah. Yeah. But when you walk off that stage, what do you like? What are you thinking? When I walk off stage, if I felt like I've performed well, I'm in a good mood. Yeah. Very excited to uh, meet people and sign some albums. And, and then I'm kind of thinking about, I'm usually really hungry. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Like sitting sitting down and having a, a bite to eat, maybe a cocktail with the band. Uh-huh. And then it's all about, you know, either getting to the next gig. If it happens to be the end of a run, I'm the same way. I'm the first flight burning. You know, uh, promoters don't love because, you know, they're having to figure out, like, all right, we got to hire someone to take you to the airport because your flight's at 630. You know, when I'm in the moment and performing, that is where I am, not anything else. But, you know, I think it's a healthy balance, you know? Yeah, no doubt. Now, the moment, the energy, it's over. Now I'm just in a strange city in a hotel room. I need to go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes total sense. I don't blame you at all. So we have this segment that we do on each show, Steve. It's called Bout It or Doubt It, okay? So if you're about it, it's something that you like. If you doubt it, it's something you're not quite feeling. Can we twist your arm and get you to play? Sure. All right, let's do it. If you bout it, get them up. I mean you body body. I mean body. We say you body body. I represent. I doubt it. All right. So, Steve, we're going to spin the wheel and get you a category, and then we're going to ask you a couple of about it or doubt it questions, all right? All right, Steve, your category today is fun and leisure. About it or doubt it? Mountain biking. About it. About it. Okay. Is it in your repertoire of, of activities? Well, I have to make a caveat. I like riding a mountain bike on a flat surface. Uh, okay. Okay. I feel you there. Uh, see, that's how I would ride a mountain bike, too. <laughs> Stay away from the mountains. Just use the bike. Absolutely. All right. All right. So do you bike for exercise or for enjoyment when you're home? Or I live in Minneapolis, and we have an incredible network of bike trails. 
Yeah. Um, many of them actually, you know, go through parks in the summertime that have, you know, beautiful scenery and also like restaurants and bars. And yeah, for me, it's a beautiful way to, you know, get some exercise, get out. This town is definitely set up for that. It really is. My family and I were there this past summer for vacation. And I got to tell you, I've been there many times before for business and things, but never really took the time to just go out into the city and explore. And that is a gorgeous city or cities, the Twin Cities. But man, that is a gorgeous area. Yeah, I, I really, really like it. Cool, cool. All right. One more about it or doubt it questions. About it or doubt it. Attending sports events. Doubt it. Doubt it. Okay. Not a big sports sports fan, huh? No, I mean, ever since I left Chicago, I've kind of lost the love. But Ah, okay, okay. Don't tell me you were a Cubs fan. Well, I was both because my uncle used to do the weather for both the Cubs and the Sox. Oh, wow, okay. He owned a private weather service, and, you know, obviously, you know, weather's really important for yeah. sport. We always got really great tickets for the Sox, so I was agnostic. That's rare, man. A Chicagoan who's agnostic on baseball, that is rare. I know. Yep. That wow. was me. It's like we went to all of it. We went to Comiskey Park back in the day and we went to Wrigley Field and it was like, you know, six of one. Yeah, that's amazing. I have a wife. I'm married to a woman who's a huge, huge Cubs fan. When the Cubs won the World Series not that long ago, she cried crocodile tears for, I think, two days, man. You know, I've never been, even though I spent, I, I lived in Chicago for about six years. And I loved the experience of going to Wrigley Field, but I could never really be a Cubs fan. I don't know why I couldn't, but I just couldn't do it. So, thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm a homer. I'm a I'm a Milwaukee guy, so I'm a Packers, Bucks, you know, Brewers fan. So, I'm still a homer. So, yeah, my my wife is from Wisconsin. Oh, she is. Okay, she's the same way. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a hole they have on us here. So, you know. So, who is an artist that you haven't worked with that you would love to collaborate with? Oh, man. You know what? I was just thinking about that the other day, and now I can't remember who. See, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I put you on the spot. <laughs> you know what? I feel like I've gotten to work with so many musicians that I never thought in a million years that I would get to work with. But if I, you know, hey, you know what? I'm going to put it out there and just be like, hey, I, I would like to work with Dua Lipa. There you go. Now, that would be something cool, you know? If it's like, you know, your your fantasy football, you know, team. There you go. <laughs> I think me and Dua Lipa would make a great record together. So if you're listening. I think you would. That is pretty cool. In the past, when you've collaborated with artists, have you, like some artists are just, you know, they're matter of fact in their business, business, right? Are you that guy or you, do you like to get to know the person and have, hang out and have some fun with the person and. Oh yeah, man. I can't, it, it can't just be about the task. Yeah. 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 I'm definitely a people person. And I'm definitely someone who is going to do better work with a collaboration if there is an actual, you know, some sort of relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I need to know something about who you are, about your life. That way you start to find these connections that find their way into the music, you know, or whatever you're doing together. Yeah, I can imagine like that's got to be especially because the process of creating is a process of really kind of revealing yourself, right? And so I got to believe that it's hard to just be business and you can't, like, I think you get so much more out of it 
when you found a vibe with that person because you found some things that you like or that are funny to you both or whatever, and, and you have something to bounce off of. Absolutely. And some of it, you know, has to do with like even artists that you have in common and, and, and that obvious, you know, and, but you find like, oh man, we're talking about this. Now we're starting to understand even more about each other's, you know, kind of creative process and the things that we like, the things that we respond to. I mean, that's why the Sax Pack was such a great collaboration because we loved hanging out. You have to get something done, right? Uh-huh. That was the coolest thing because we just had so much fun together. And then when we got into the creative process, it was just natural, you know? Yeah, yeah. Are you guys planning on doing anything else with the Sax Pack? Yeah, I mean, it's always out there. I mean, let me put it this way. It's like we're not collaborating currently because we don't want to. Uh-huh. Collaborating currently because we we're all doing other stuff. And when, you know, different projects kind of create space for us to, you know, get back together and do something, I have every confidence that we will. I mean Yeah. Well, we will look forward to that because that was some you you guys played well together and that was something that uh I know I enjoyed the work that you guys did at Sax Pack, and so we'll look forward to that. Well, how about we listen to one more of your songs, Steve? This one was a song that was a, a top 10 hit for you in 2022. You know which one we're talking about? Yeah, I think that was Covent Garden. You got it. Tell us a little bit about the origins of that song. So this is a song that I wrote with David Mann, who is a producer I've worked with on many, many records. He's an incredible producer and incredible saxophone player. Plays with the Eagles and first call in New York for everything cool. So this is a song that that when I when collaborating on it, it started making me think about an area in London that my wife and I visit a lot because we we had been playing every year at a jazz club in Soho. The area is called Covent Garden. So yeah, that's kind of what inspired this song. Awesome. Well, here's Steve Cole with Covent Garden.
But you just heard today's guest, Steve Cole, with his big hit from 2022, Covent Garden. So, Steve, what is something that your fans and our listeners would be surprised to learn about you? That I am obsessed with with woodworking. I've invested way too much money in power tools. Oh, you know, during COVID, now we're we're at home, and my my wife is 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 very much a creative. She's a has a a very strong design kind of you know things. Whether it's her clothes or whether it's the house. And one day she starts looking you know at the mantle, and she's like, "We need a new mantle." You know, okay, but. A, I don't really want, you know, someone coming to my house right now. What do you have in mind? And so she sketches out this mantle. I'm like, and I don't know where this came from. And she looks at me. She's like, what do you mean you could build that? I'm like, I could build that. I used to hang out with my dad. My dad was a handyman, you know. So I ordered some lumber. And literally, I ordered some lumber and some tools. You know, I had a, a few swings and misses, but like, so I built this mantle. And then she's like, well, I want another one. And then she starts thinking about, well, you know, the bathroom, if we had, you know, board and batten and, and and then in the living room, if we had, and then, so she start basically treat me like I'm the in-house carpenter. <laughs> like, you see how they did in the walls here? Can you do that? I'm like, well, now I'm not, now it's a matter of pride because now my, uh-huh. You're earning major hubby points along the way though here, dude. You know, here's the thing. All right. I've played at the Hollywood bowl and my wife was kind of like, meh. <laughs> Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been there, done that. But man, when I when I built a box uh-huh. out of wood, <laughs> I felt like she was a groupie. So no one, hey, keep investing that money in that hobby, man. That's that's good for life and for your marriage, right? <laughs> basement full of power tools. Completely obsessed with it, and uh, yeah, you know that is awesome. I have two studios, one upstairs with with musical instruments in it, and then one downstairs with Makita. That's all right. Good for you, man. Good for you. So tell us your three favorite albums of all time, Steve. Oh, man. Well, uh, one of them has to be Spyrogyra, uh, Catching the Sun, because I used to listen to that constantly. One of them is a record that I would listen to when I was really young. It was my dad's. It was the Conti Candoli All-Stars and Big Jazz. I'll try and think of one, like a recent album. I would have to say 
Because I am kind of a pop music fan. I think that John Mayer's Room for Squares was a really good record. It's a hard question to answer. Those were the three things that came to, uh, into my brain. Yeah. And I got to tell you, those are great ones. And, you know, John Mayer, my wife is a huge John Mayer fan. Huge John Mayer fan. And I got a chance to go see him play and live. It was probably about four or five years ago. I had to tell you, man, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, I'm listening to this cat. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God. This has got to be one of the top five or six guitar players on the planet. Like, that dude is phenomenal. Yeah, I really like his songwriting. I think it's interesting. It, it's not predictable. I think he's an incredible guitar player. Really, really a deep kind of old soul. Yeah, you know? no doubt. I was listening to him on Saturday, and a, a song of his that I hadn't, I don't remember hearing before, but I must have played it about four times on Saturday, a song called Rosie. And I, I didn't remember hearing that song ever before of his, but I was just like, man, that's a really, really good song. So yeah, I'm with you on the John Mayer, man. That's serious stuff. All right, one more of those questions for you. You're having a dinner party, and you can invite any three people, living or deceased. Who's coming to Steve Cole's dinner party and what's on the menu? Mm, who's coming to Steve Cole? A living or dead? Living or dead. Your call. <laughs> wow. Uh, this is going to be weird because, I mean, of course, there's a couple like count as two or one. You can count them as one. You can count them as one. And I have to have, you know, Barack and Michelle Obama have to be there. There you go. <laughs> a lot of questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, who was part of this kind of classical school of saxophone, his name is Marcel Mule. would like him to be there. That would be pretty slick. And, uh, I mean, there are cats like, you know, a lot of people would say like Miles Davis, but I'd be afraid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think he would I think he would just look at me and shake his head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. Yeah, honestly, it was like I, mean, I, would, I would say Miles Davis was I think he would just be like, "What is this you're doing?" <laughs> I, just, I, I don't know, man. I don't I'd be afraid. That is great. Herman Woke, one of my favorite authors. Ah, yeah. I think he would be hip to have there. So, Barack Obama, Marcel Mule and Herman Woke. Fantastic. And what's on the menu? Oh, what's on the menu? Paella. Paella. Ooh, love some good paella. Good paella is, is a labor of love, man, because you good paella and be in a hurry. Nope, you cannot. got to take your time and got to put some love in it. That's awesome. Man, that sounds like a pretty good party. So tell us, we know you got a new album coming out. Tell us what the rest of 2023 holds for you, Steve. Well, the rest of 2023, I'll be working on finishing this thing. It is well underway, and I got to say, I'm really thrilled about what's kind of coming out. I've been sharing some of it on my mostly weekly little podcast that I put up on Facebook called Sessions with Steve Cole, hearing some of the new music. Some of it that I've shared may not make the cut. I kind of ask people, but really excited about that. Definitely, you know, getting back on the road in 23 more busy in 24 believe it or not okay okay just kind of started to think about like all right yeah let's get back out there with you know just trying to make sure that i'm there for my students you know semester starts again in a in a week so got a lot of really incredibly talented students who are going to do great things and making sure that i'm also focusing on them and their careers so yeah man and uh just you know living life and spending time with family and uh, try not to eat so many carbs yeah 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 <laughs> yeah i know that issue man all too well <laughs> all too well so, <laughs> well i want to thank you steve for taking time to chop it up with us a little bit today we certainly enjoy the conversation and wish you nothing but continued success and can't wait for that new release to come out yeah, thanks very much. I'm looking forward to that, too. And thank you for having me, man. Absolutely. Great. Pleasure's all ours, man. All the best to you. 
All right, everybody. I want to let you know that our 2023 Fresh Coast Jazz Festival will take place August 25th and 26th at the Paps Theater in Milwaukee. This year's lineup includes Larry Carlton, Paul Brown, Julian Vaughn, Rick Braun, Lindsey Webster, Lynn Roundtree, Ollie Silk, and Jeff Ryan. Get your tickets now by going to freshcoastjazz.com. That's our show for this week. Be sure to check out our website, freshcoastjazz.com, to sign up for our email list so you can stay up on what's going on with contemporary jazz. We'll see you next time on Fresh Coast Jazz Backstage. Backstage.